But we are going to be looking at Acts chapter 4. We're going to look at verse 1 all the way through verse 22. Verse 1 through 22. And we looked at it 1 through 4 last week. But I want to read all of it this morning. 1 through 22 of chapter 4. That says this. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captains of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them into custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. So on the next day, the rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Ananias, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they acquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed? Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by the him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man whom healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, (coughs) saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all of the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may be spread no farther among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in his name, in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or to teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John announced, answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. When they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them. Because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word. God, this is what we find our authority in. And so my prayer would be, as I explained the text, God, that our authority in our um, time together would be just behind the scripture, God, that the words I say, the explanations I give 
would be grounded in your truth and your truth alone, God, as we think through applications and implications of this, God, that we would do so in such a way that would be fitting to the meaning of their text, to the original audience. God, certainly we do know not, we cannot imagine completely what it would be like to hear Peter and John say these words or for Theopolis to read these words for the first time or for the Christian church to read it for the first time. But God, these are words that you not only gave to them through the authority of your word, but you gave to us. So let us find merit and trust in them. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning, we're going to not only look at this text, but we're going to look at several others. Um, and in doing so, what we're going to find um, is really just this idea, and I'm going to look at it in two ways. Um, I'm going to break this specific scripture up in three ways, but we're going to look at this idea in two ways. And we're going to look at it as in the idea of seeing is not believing. Seeing is not believing. It's not on the screen behind me, so I'm going to say it multiple times so that you can gather it if you want to write it down. Seeing is not believing. And by that, what we're going to see is by whose name. And then secondly, we're going to look at do not speak or teach in Jesus' name. So we're going to see the fact that them, these individuals, these religious leaders, seeing the, the healing of this man did not lead to them believing. And in the last couple of weeks, I've, I've made this statement, and I want to say it again, but I want to add to it this morning. The statement I've been making is that the healing of this lame man, or this crippled man, as he says in this specific text, was, the, was for the, purposes, the purpose of softening his and the witness's hearts for the gospel. What I want to add to it this morning is really just another statement altogether of but it was not but it was also used to harden the hearts of some. And the preaching of God's word does this. See the reality is that so often we do these things and we should called to do things for softening the hearts of man. But what we should not be surprised by is the reality is that often it does not lead to the softening of hearts, but really the hardening of hearts. If that be directly due to the sovereignty of God or by the choice of man, there's different moments where both occur. We see that in the life of Pharaoh. We see that in the life of other individuals throughout Scripture. So we should not ignore that or we should not avoid that. God hardens hearts, but man also hardens hearts. In this particular moment, we cannot speak to which one is going on, but we see that happening. And so as we explore that, what we're going to clearly see in this is that seeing is not believing. So to begin with, let's look at verses 1 through 4, just to kind of catch us up where we're at. It says, And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captains of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them. On pause here, we saw this last week, but just to kind of catch us up, the priests are those who, for the purpose of making sacrifices and leading the people of Israel. So you have the priests here that are coming to them, but you also have the captain of the temple, which would have been the person right under the high priest. So he would have been the next man in charge. He would have been the one present at the nine o'clock, the, the, the ninth hour per se. So he's in charge, but he's also the captain of the temple police. 
So this captain, along with the priest, as well as the Sadducees came. Sadducees were those teaching within the, church, the temple. So these three different groups of people come. And the reason why they come is, according to verse 2, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. So first off, they're, they're annoyed. They're, they're just mad at this point. Because these guys are preaching Jesus and the resurrection of the dead. So not only Jesus, but the resurrection of the dead. And so often we kind of group those two things together. And that's true. Jesus certainly rose from the dead. And he, in Christ, now we all have resurrection from death into life. When Christ returns uh, and all of those amazing things. But also these group of people would have been at odds with one another. So this was a topic they would ignore. Because there was actually some people in the religious sect of Judaism that would have disagreed with the idea of resurrection from the dead altogether. And so they avoided this topic completely so they would not cause division among them. And so they're annoyed that they're preaching Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus, but also just the resurrection of the dead altogether. So in verse 3, it says, As they arrested them, they put them in custody until the next day, for it had already been evening. But many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. So uh, in the first few chapters of Acts, we see the day of Pentecost, where 3,000 souls come to know Christ. It says, and daily they added to their numbers. And now we see this moment in the temple where the preaching of God's word occurs. And now the total number of Christians in Jerusalem are 5,000, okay? We don't know how many are saved in between Pentecost and now, but we know a great number of people are saved in the preaching of Peter previously in chapter 3. But in chapter, in verse 3 here, since they were held till the next day, because this was late evening, okay? So this would have been the last prayer time of the day. The other religious leaders that we're going to look at here in just a moment, this council, they're not there anymore. They're gone. They're with their families. They're so they weren't going to be put on trial in this moment. It was a big deal, but it wasn't a big enough deal to call the high priest and the high priestly family out of their homes to come and handle it. So they're arrested until the next day. So layman's healed. Peter preaches the gospel. The people are annoyed at the preaching of Jesus and the resurrection of the dead. So they arrest them waiting for this moment in which they would be put before this council of individuals. Commonly known as the Sanhedrin. So verse 5 says, On the next day. See, in verse 5 through verse 12 is where we... We're starting this idea of by whose name. Because we see two, two things that this Sanhedrin does. They ask this question by whose name, and then they tell them not to preach and teach of that person's name. Okay, So right here, by whose name is the question that we're going to see asked. But it says, on the next day, the rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Ananias, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they set them in the midst of them, they inquired. I'm going to pause there. Because I want us to visualize this here. Is you have these individuals that would have set the charge the day before present here. But more than that, you also have this high priestly family. And to make this make sense, you have Ananias and Caiaphas. Caiaphas and Ananias are people that you maybe remember from reading through the Gospels. And these were individuals that Jesus stood before right before his, his, uh, right before his crucifixion. And so you have Ananias and Caiaphas. All right, so 
what's interesting about this is when Rome would take over a place, they didn't do away with everything that place had. What they would do is just cause and make these people confirm, uh, not confirm, but conform to their lifestyle. So when they took over Jerusalem, it's not like they did away with all Jewish backgrounds or Israelite backgrounds. It's not as if they came in and they said, you can't worship God anymore in the temple. They came in and they gave them strict restrictions of what they could and could not do. And one of those I think what we would uh, we commonly see here is what they saw about the Israelites is that this one individual, this high priest, had a lot of weight, a lot of power within the people. And so Rome came in, and the only thing that I really noticed they've changed, and they could have changed more, but the, the most important thing is what they came in and said was, your high priest can't be a lifelong commitment anymore. So they caused them to regulate that a little bit. We see this even in the book of John. So the reason why I say all that is because it says Ananias, the high priest. But the thing about Ananias, the high priest, is he was only the high priest from about A.D. 1 to about A.D. 15, which was about 25 years prior to this moment. And what's going on in this is the people of God, the Israelites, saw Ananias as the high priest, though Caiaphas, which would have been the son-in-law of Ananias, was actually the high priest functioning in Rome, in Jerusalem, on power of Rome. So they appear to Ananias, they appear to Caiaphas, and you also see John and Alexander and this high priestly family. They're gathering these two guys, Peter and John, before this group of men for the purpose of what we're about to discuss. But I want you to imagine it. Um, imagine if you had right here just this kind of a moon, half moon shaped, uh, just chairs laid around. And then you had where the, where the, camera sitting. If you're watching online, you can't visualize this as well. Where the camera sitting is where Peter and John would have probably been. So this half moon group of religious leaders put John and Peter in the middle of the room and they're all glaring at them. Almost like that job interview you've probably had where there's a group of like six people across from you and just pouring, pouring at you question after question after question for a long time, but much more different because they have the power to kill. So this group of men looking at John, looking at Peter, and they're about to ask him a question. And that question is very simply, by what power or by what name did you do this? They already knew, okay? But it's a public record kind of deal here. This would have been the first step in a, uh, a legal battle, essentially. All right, so this is the first step is to get down to the bottom of what's going on. So they already know the answer to this question, but they're asking it anyway. By what power did you do this or by what name did you do this? Because even saying by the name of, you're saying it in the power of, okay? And so they're asking, how did you accomplish this? What did you do to make this lame man walk? Verse 8, then Peter Filled with the Holy Spirit. This isn't the same of Acts chapter 2 being filled with the Holy Spirit. This is a specific moment where the Spirit of God empowered Peter to say what Peter is about to say. So just like Peter was not the one that was at work in the raising of the lame man as he grabbed him by the arm and pulled him up, Peter is not the one at charge here. Being filled with the Spirit, Peter says what he says. This is a byproduct of trusting in the Spirit of God to give him words to say before this council. 
So though Peter was the one vocally saying this, though he may have mentally thought them, this is all about the empowerment of the Spirit. And it is evident, even in just a moment as we get there, that the people that was watching and listening to him knew that this could not just be words from Peter because they're uneducated common men. So Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, says these words. Now, these words are going to be very similar to the last two times we've talked about what Peter had said. First, the Sermon of Pentecost, and then second, the sermon that we looked at last week in the temple. And once again, we're going to see boldness, and we're going to see just dependence upon God and all of these things. I'm going to touch on them, but I want to spend as much time there as I have in the past couple of times. It says, rulers of the people and elders. So first and foremost, he doesn't walk up to this crowd of people in a disrespectful manner. He does it in a respectful manner. He, he addresses them as they should have been addressed. He says, rulers of the people and elders. He's coming at them with respect and honor, though we see that in some ways they should not have deserved it. But hierarchy standard of the day, they deserve the honor. And he knows, I would argue, the power of God knows that if they approached this in such a way that would have been dishonorable to these people, it would have just caused them to not listen from the onset. So he approaches them with honor, with praise of who they are, rulers and people and elders. Verse 9, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed? So he's laying out there. You're, you're calling us to this because this man has been healed. If this is why, verse 10, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel. So he's not only speaking to these religious leaders, but everyone that could have been hearing this or everyone that would have heard about what was said. He says, by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him, this man is standing before you well. I want to note here, and we're going to see it two more times. This crippled man has also been arrested with Peter and John in there before them. He's present through all of this. They knew this man. They knew he was lame. They knew he was crippled. And so he says, by his name, by the name of Jesus, this man is standing before you. But what does he say about this man? Jesus Christ of Nazareth. This is what they wrote on his plaque that hung on his chest as he was being nailed to a cross. Whom you crucified. He's boldly saying, look, you crucified this guy. You crucified Jesus because you are the ones that were the, the ones that were at hand in this. And he's talking directly to the people that was actively pursuing the crucifixion of Christ. This wasn't just the onlookers anymore. This just wasn't the people that was saying, crucify him. These were the people that stood over charge of Jesus and gave permission over the Roman government to pursue the death of Jesus. These were the ones that gathered in the dark of night, in the secret of night, and proceeded to give this charge to Jesus that would demand his death. Peter is not mixing words just like none of the other times, but he's not just talking to Israelites anymore. He's talking about the people that killed Jesus in a very similar fashion. So what I want us to see in this just very quickly is this boldness is even more bold in this moment because he's talking to people that could kill them. Clearly, it was evident because they had already killed their Savior. But don't miss, this is whom God raised from the dead. 
that this Jesus was the one whom God the Father sent into the world because men and women had sinned against a perfect and holy God. A God that is righteous, a God that has created the world, the God that we are accountable to. And we have sinned against not only Adam and Eve, but all of us. We have sinned against this God. And in sinning against this God, God had a deep love for ourselves and a desire for his glory that he sent his son into the world to live a perfect and holy life. So Jesus, being perfect, being holy, being righteous, was killed by these men, but the grave could not hold them. Why? Because he was a holy God wrapped in flesh. Without knowing sin, he could not die to sin, but he was rose, risen again from death into life. So even in these words, he's proclaiming the gospel to these people. The same gospel that I charge us to trust in and depend on, maybe for the very first time or continually in our lives, that we look to Jesus and Jesus alone, just like the question asked this morning, oh, if since we are saved by faith alone and Christ alone, always you continue in good works? Yes, but it's by the firm foundation that we're saved by faith alone and Christ alone. So, boldly looks at these men in the face, says, you crucified him, God raised him from the dead, and by this man, this Jesus, he's standing before you well. He's being very clear here that it was in the name of Jesus that this guy is now walking. What does this continue to tell us about Jesus, though? Verse 11. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by whom we must be saved. I'm going to get to verse 12, but I want to look at verse 11 first, because verse 11 reminds us, or should remind us, of a scripture. And that is in Luke chapter 20, 9 through 18. Luke 20, 9 through 18. And we're going to look at that together. Uh, it's not on the screen, so you can either turn or you can just listen. So Luke 20, 9 through 18, where Jesus is speaking, and he's given a parable. A parable of the wicked tenants. And this is what he has to say. And he begins to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and lent it out to tenants. And he went to another country for a long while. So this man buys a piece of property. He invests in it. He plants a vineyard in it. And then he rents the vineyard out to other people's other people that would then invest their life in there and try to make money, and then he would get a portion of that back due to the rent that he was charging them, okay? Verse 10, and, the, and when the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants, so they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. So this owner of the property builds a vineyard, puts people over it. Now he's expecting his pay. So he sends his servants to collect the pay. And what do the tenants do instead? They beat up the, they beat up the, the representative and he goes back empty handed. So verse 11. So another servant, but they also beat him and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty handed. We don't know what the shamefully meant, but what we do know is that they treated him worse than the first guy and they sent him back empty handed as well. Verse 12. And they sent yet a third. This was also they wounded and cast out. 
So same thing. Third person comes. They take him in. They reject him. They beat him. They, they do all of these wicked things to him, and they send him out empty-handed. Verse 13. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. And then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? Verse 16. Who will come and he will destroy their tenants and then give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is it that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush them. This is a parable. It's speaking of Jesus being the cornerstone. And it's this parable in which Jesus is teaching about this vineyard, this fictitious vineyard, where these wicked tenants, after getting three messengers, sending them away, receive the son, and the son, they not only reject, but they kill. Why does this relate to Jesus specifically? It's because this is what we see throughout the, all of the Old Testament in the first four books of the New Testament. Is that God sent man after man after man after man after man after man to prophesy and teach of the holiness of God and the coming of a Messiah. And time in and time out, God's people rejected it. And not only did they reject the messages of the prophets, but they rejected the Son. And Jesus, before his death, is essentially prophesying of his death. And he refers to himself as the cornerstone, which I will say, just very briefly, it's also a psalm. Um, and so, in all of that, we're going to move forward. But what he's saying here is that the stone that the builder rejected has become the cornerstone. The one in which it was all supposed to be built upon is the one whom the builder rejected. It's the same thing Peter is saying here, but not only is he saying it, but he's quoting the Scripture. And he says this in verse 11, This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. He's quoting Scriptures to the religious leaders, and he's saying, look, this is the one, this is the cornerstone, this is the one that the psalmist spoke of. And you've rejected him, you've turned against him, you've, you've, you're incurring occurring destruction for yourselves. That because you've rejected him, he will reject you. But then he gives a hope here. See, this is a very religious context, and we're going to see in Cornerstone in a minute if I'm remembering right. But this is a very religious concept of just saying very simply that Jesus was the cornerstone. It's the one the building was supposed to be built on because he is the head of the church. But these people rejected him. But he's then giving some hope to them in verse 12. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. He's not only continuing the thought process, but he's presenting the gospel to them. That there is nothing else that can save you. 
He's looking at the religious leaders. He's looking at the priest. He's looking at the, the high priestly family. He's looking at all of them. And he says, nothing you do will save you. The sacrifices, the religious deeds, the good deeds, none of that will suffice. It is all going to be dung at the end of it all. Worthless. And I would say the same to us. As our kids are learning about now, we are certainly to pursue good works in this life after we have come to know Christ. But nothing good we do will save us. Nothing good we do will give God the reason to redeem us. Nothing that we could do for the rest of our lives was what God saw when he saw us. He saw wretched, sinful men and women deserving of the wrath of God, deserving of the judgment of God, deserving of eternal life in condemnation through a place called hell and the rejection and the, the wrath of God being poured out upon us. That's what we deserve. But instead, through Christ, the only name that we can be saved, he looks at us in positionally righteousness because Christ has redeemed and saved all who have recepted, accepted him and trusted in him and nothing else. So they ask this question, by whom's name? Whose name? Peter says very plain, plainly, in the name of Jesus. But he says more than that. He takes his opportunity. He proclaims the gospel hard. Then in verse 13, we see a response. And that response is simply going to be chopped up to do not speak or teach in Jesus' name. But let's look at it line by line. Verse 13. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men they were astonished and they were recognized that they had been with Jesus. So they're looking at these two guys, Peter and John. And simply what they come out to is they look at these guys and they see that they're dumb people. <laughs> I mean, plain and simply. We can call it what we want, but they look at them and presume that these people are dumb. Possibly illiterate. Possibly unable to read, for that to be more clear. Possible that they're just not educated whatsoever, not only uh, in general, but specifically in the law, in the Psalms. They're just uneducated people. And what's so amazing about that is that's true. Fishermen gathered to proclaim the gospel. And Scripture has already told us in verse 8, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, so what Peter said was the use of uneducated man, but the power of God behind them. So their uneducatedness, their uh, un lack of knowledge with biblical things was a way in which God furthered the gospel in the hearts of these people. They were astonished. And what they were astonished and what they recognized in this is that they had been with Jesus. They knew it to be true. That these people lived like they had been with Jesus. They spoke like they had been with Jesus. They acted as if they'd been with Jesus. They responded and just exhibited the characteristics of someone that had been with this Jesus. I'm going to say this in passing. But would the same be said of us if we were given an account of the good deeds we have in our lives? Would we be seen as men and women that have been taught through Jesus, the power of God, through the work of the Spirit? Or do we lean way too much on our own ability, our own reason, our own um, 
readiness to dissect and dig into Scripture? Would we be known as people that walked with Jesus simply because we'd followed the leading of the Spirit so closely that the words we said was exactly what God desired? Verse 14. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, once again we see this man's with them, they had nothing to say in opposition. It's just plain and simple. They, they, they had no argument. They had no case from themselves. This man was there. He was healed. They knew of Jesus' healing. They knew of Jesus' works. It's plain and simple that Jesus, through the name of Jesus, this man was healed. So they had no opposition. So they don't say anything in response that's recorded in Scripture. Maybe they said something, but we don't know of that. But what we do know in verse 15, but when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another. So Peter and John and this lame man possibly leaves the council and the council begin to talk to one another. And they ask this question. What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all of the inhabitants of Jerusalem and we cannot deny it. So I want to tie here is the same thing we see throughout the book of John. The whole reason in which Jesus did signs was to confirm that he was sent by God. Not only did he testify, and not only did the Father testify that he was the Son of God, but their works testified. There was more than one testifying nature to this. The same things here is you have John and you have Peter testifying the risen Savior, but not only are they testifying the risen Savior, but so is the lame man that was healed sitting right beside them. Why is this important? It's because this would have been much like a legal counsel standing across from them, ready to judge them and give a, the, just this settlement to them of what they can and cannot do, what their punishment would be. But through the healing of this lame man, we see that there's nothing they can do about it. Verse 17, he continues. But in order that we may spread no further among the people. Let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them in and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. So their response, knowing they had no leg to stand on, knowing they had no legal battle here, knowing there was nothing that would profit them in pursuing some kind of punishment towards them because the people saw it. They were present. There was even some that was in the temple that believed upon the name of Jesus. It would cause an uproar. They would, they would go against them. They would lose their power, their might. So what they do instead is they charge them not to speak or do anything in the name of Jesus. But in 19... We see their response. But what I want to note about this, and I don't think it's any accident. I think it's very intentional. It says, and Peter and John answered them. Not Peter answering them. Not Peter preaching. Peter and John. We don't know how they said this. I'm certainly not going to attempt to say it in Greek because I couldn't if I wanted to. We don't know if they said it in unison. We don't know if they said it in their own words in different ways. But they say, rather, it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God. You must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. 
Peter and John is simply looking at them. Say, judge for yourself. Do what you want to do. Bring whatever judgment you want to bring. Bring whatever punishment you want to bring. But we have no choice but to preach and proclaim that Christ was resurrected from the dead and saving all who believe and trust in him. We have no choice but to proclaim the gospel. Do what you must, but we will do what we must. And that is to proclaim Christ crucified. But remember... They have no leg to stand on here because there's literally a lame man standing in front of them. So verse 21 says, And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people for all who were praising God for what had happened. So regardless if these people thought they were from God or if they thought they were trusting in Jesus or not, regardless, all of the people or some of the people was praising God because this could only be a work of God. Why could it only be a work of God? Verse 22. For the man whom the sign had been healing was performed was more than 40 years old. So regardless if they wanted to believe in Jesus as their Savior or not, what was abundantly clear to the people in the temple is that God did a work in the life of this man. Why? Because he was healed after being lame for 40 years. I may look older, and I'm the oldest one in the room. But the reality is, none of us in this room are 40 years old. None of us can imagine what it's like to even live 40 years. But this man was lame for 40 years, and they knew it. And so when this happened, regardless if they trusted in Jesus or not, the people in the temple noticed that God was doing something. So they were praising God. It doesn't mean they worshiped God. It doesn't mean that they truly believed in Jesus, all of those things. It just very simply means they saw this as an act of God. So therefore, they praised God. They gave honor to God in this moment. Though we certainly see there were some that were saved, not all were, but pretty much everyone that was there was knowing that this was a work of God in their lives. Now, I started this off with this idea that it was not only God not only used this encounter to soften the hearts of man, but it was either used by God or the cause of it was also to harden the hearts of some. And what I'm speaking to specifically is that of the religious leaders. But I want us to look at a scripture for us to understand that a little bit greater this morning. In Matthew 13. Matthew 13, 10 through 17 says this. Matthew 13, 10 through 17. It says, Then the disciples came and said to them, why do you speak to them in parables? I wanted us to explore this because we too looked at a parable this morning. Why do you speak to them in parables? He answered them. To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. But to them it has not been given. For it is the one who has what will be given. And the one who have abundance. But from one who has not... Even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables. Seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but will never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull. And with their ears, they can barely hear, and their eyes have been closed, 
lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn, and I would heal them. That is quoted specifically from one of my favorite moments in Scripture, which is Isaiah 6. I'm going to read it to us. I'm going to stop where it's quoted. It's quoted in 9 through 10. Isaiah 6, 1. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon the throne high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, and two they covered his face, and two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. And one called to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. <coughs> the foundation of the threshold shook, and the voice of him who called, and the house which was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King of the Lord of hosts. Then the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that had been taken away with tongues of the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt has taken away, and your sins atoned for. Verse 8. And I heard the voice of the Lord said, Whom shall I send, and whom will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. Then 9 and 10 is what we just read, quoted in Luke, I mean in, sorry, Matthew. Then verse 11 says, Then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitants, the house without people, the land in desolate waste, and the Lord removes people from far away. And the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land, and though the tent remain in it, it will be burned again, and the remnant of the oak whose stump remains will it is filled. The holy seed is its stump. Much like all of the Old Testament, there's a lot of prophecy here, a lot of calling of people to live out specific things, but indwelt in them is a picture of the Christ that was to come. We see that specifically in the very last part of verse 13. Since the holy seed is in the stump. What we see in all of this, though, and what we see even in Exodus, in the moment of Israelites, in Moses, in Pharaoh, is that people harden their hearts. There's times in Exodus where it says Pharaoh hardened his heart, there's times where it says God hardened Pharaoh's hearts. There's times in the New Testament we see the same principles. Even in, in Isaiah here we see this coming out. That God was hardening the hearts of his own people so they would reject him. Why? Because he was doing something greater. So the reason why I want to mention this is not as a discouragement to us. Because what we see in all of this, in the fact that God is softening some hearts and hardening some hearts, or, or allowing hearts to be softened and allowing hearts to be hardened, what we see in all of this is that God is not only in control of salvation, but He is the one saving people. But what I want us to see in that is John and Peter's example. Peter and John has no idea who God is saving. 
God is doing a work that God can only do. And in doing that, what we see Peter doing is being faithful in proclaiming the gospel. Proclaiming the truth of the resurrected Savior. And this is not news to anyone, but I hold heavily the fact that God sovereignly knows whom he's saving that God sovereignly knows whose hearts he is softening, whose hearts are hardening. But the reality is very simple, and it's that we have no idea. So we gather at times and we pray, God soften their hearts. So we pray at home amongst ourselves, amongst our families, that God would save people. And then we take advantage of opportunities, proclaim the gospel to them so that God can save those whom God is saving. God is certainly sovereign over all. But you and I are no different than Peter and John. When the religious leaders looked out and it says they were astonished. Why were they astonished? They perceived that they were uneducated common men You and I are no different. God's sovereign, we're not, but he calls us to something greater. What he's calling us to, first and foremost, to trust in Jesus. He's the only way of salvation. Peter makes that clear. But the second thing I want us to pull from this, it's very plainly, God's going before us. He's going to make his gospel hit in the right place of the man's heart, the woman's heart. But he's calling us to be the mouthpieces of his gospel. So let's be people that proclaim the gospel. Let's be people that then lead people that come to know Jesus in discipleship, teaching them to observe all that the Lord had commanded. And in the midst of all of these things, my prayer would be very simply that we would be much like Peter, In verse 8, we would be people that are filled with the Holy Spirit. That we would not lean into our own ability, our own education, our own knowledge. But we would lean into the power of God through the Spirit of God to empower us to say the words that we are to say. Not saying we shouldn't be ready. Not saying we shouldn't know the gospel. But saying simply that let us trust in God. Let's lean into Him. Let's rest in Him. We have a good and loving Father that desires to save people. Let's trust in Him. Heavenly Father, we love You. We thank You. God, Your Son is the cornerstone that was rejected. The one whom You gave all power and authority to. The one whom commissioned us with the same charge to go therefore and make disciples of all nations. God, we're going to sing of Him in just a moment. But God, let us now position our hearts in such a way that we're going to trust in Him to do the work of saving through the Spirit of God, through the sending and setting apart of your hand, of your sheep, so they would hear his voice, they would respond accordingly. We pray this in your Son's perfect and holy name. Amen.